Father, and above all, we desire this morning to glorify your name, to bless you, to give you the worship that uh, you deserve. We know that we fall short in our weakness to praise and to adore and to worship you. This morning, we desire from your word as we get a glimpse of what you have for us, what you've instructed us with, and how you've drawn us to yourself and given us empowerment to be able to live differently. We just pray that in this passage that we might understand more fully who we are in you, and from that we will glorify you and praise your name. So we commit our time to you, desiring that if we have anything that distracts maybe concerns of the day or this afternoon or whatever, we may set them aside. If there's unconfessed sin, that we may lay that before you and be in full fellowship with you, and that we may maximize our benefit from what your word wants to instruct us. We commit our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Get into Romans. You might think that when you become a believer, in fact, some people even give the impression that everything's going to be fine, all your problems are going to be solved, everything's going to go well, you're not going to encounter too many, maybe a few bumps in the road, but Nothing uh, significant. And we look at uh, Romans 7, and I think it gives us a realistic picture. The brief description I gave you is not realistic and not even biblical. In fact, you might even expect, and we mention this because you men- most of you minister to others, in your discipleship, you ought to communicate to them that becoming a Christian now begins a lot of your problems, particularly in terms of spiritual issues that are sometimes internal and unseen. A lot of those will come to the surface and manifest themselves in different ways because of the corruption of the flesh. So a lot of the verses that we've been looking at and the ones that we'll focus in on today 7, 18 through, actually, we'll, I hope to get beyond 2020. 20. We looked at 18 last time, and I'll review it and pick up in the middle of it. But I think the thrust of chapter 7, one of the main problems that we face as believers is the fact that we still have a tendency, at least, some people call it a nature, more than an inclination, an old nature or a sinful nature, that we still have, even though we have a new nature, which I think is very clear in Scripture. We are new creatures, a new creation, Second Corinthians chapter 5. But we are plagued with this old, lingering, what Paul describes as the flesh. So we looked at that last time. I'll review a little of that, and then we'll move on to the, the next passage. I like to show these slides because... It reminds us that Paul is writing to real people that lived in real places. Those of you that were in the Israel trip remember the Arch of Constantine. Now this is later in the history after Paul writes, but a lot of the remains, for example, the Temple of Faustina and Antonius, many of them the Roman people would have been familiar with and would have seen as they lived in that time frame. So these are real things that 
all rights concerning real issues in people's lives. The Bible indicates that the nature of man has not changed other than the fall. The fall, we fell into sin, so we are plagued with the same problems that uh, the children of Adam and Eve faced, and Adam and Eve after sin, and the solutions are the same relationship with God himself, the means and the way that people approach God differed over time, but real people, real events, so what all rights to the Romans is totally applicable to us. Now, the Colosseum did exist in the first century. It was under construction when Paul was still alive. He didn't see the completion of it, but he would have been familiar with the Colosseum. He died a martyr's death shortly before. So we're talking about justification. We've completed that portion, 3 through the end of chapter 5, which leads to sanctification. Now we use these theological words because these are the words that Paul uses. And Paul is writing to believers. I emphasize that over and over. So when he's talking about the lostness of man, it's not evangelistic. He's writing it so believers can understand the nature of man in order to present the gospel to lost people. So these concepts are written for the believer. Some of them are not so easy. Some of them we spent quite a bit of time. So justification is the concept of salvation. We're more familiar with that or conversion or the concept of coming into a relationship. And then after that, sanctification is God continuing to build within us his character. In other words, conforming us to his image. Lots of biblical words that describe that. Christian growth, Christian life, Christian walk. Theological terms, sanctification. The setting us apart for a particular purpose that God has. And part of that process is working within us to produce within us a righteous life more and more. We've seen it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Chapter 6 gives us the principles. So we spent lots of time looking at the principles of the Christian life. And we're in chapter 7 looking at the problems that stand in the way of sanctification. The things that do not sanctify, and we're in the middle of that passage, which prepares us for successful Christian living. I think chapter 7 is a description of the defeat that we may experience in the Christian walk if we are not counteracting those problems that he lays out. And then chapter 8, it gives us the power that is available in order to be able to live the life. And we'll get to it in a few weeks. So we've seen more principles in chapter 7, even though the emphasis deals with the negative aspect and the the aspect of problems. Lots of principles in chapter 6. In fact, we developed nine of them. In chapter 7, 10, the church-age believers are not under law. Now, that was a huge problem in the first century. How do converts to Christianity, how do converts to Christ, and particularly non-Jewish converts, do we make them obey the law now? Do we make them conform to the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant? And we said church-age believers are not under law. So we defined what that meant. 
We are not under the Old Testament covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. And Paul spends lots of time in there in the early part of chapter 7, developing the idea, problem is not with the law. The law is good. The law still has value. In fact, some of the other principles. But the law was never intended to sanctify, nor can it sanctify. So if you're trying to come up with a checklist, okay, I'm going to obey this, I'm going to obey that, I'm going to obey this, and even New Testament commands on top of Old Testament commands, check all the boxes off, that's going to sanctify me. Now, that's our tendency. In other words, I want to do all these things to please God. That's called legalism. That does not sanctify. So that's the first issue that he deals with. David? The law's purpose was to demonstrate that sanctification can't be That was one of the purposes, yep. In fact, what the law does, it's still useful. It was useful for Israel. In fact, they were under the law because it was also a covenant, and it was useful to them for the same purpose that it's useful even today. So studying the Old Testament will help us to identify and clearly understand God's standards, God himself, God's nature, and particularly our lack of ability to be able to obey the stipulations. So it exposes sin, so it's useful today. We've been seeing in this passage, in chapter 7, very specifically the later parts of the verses, that sanctification involves this internal warfare. And he's going to develop the imagery of warfare in some of the later verses that we probably won't even get into this morning. So sanctification involves internal warfare. Because conversion, even though in terms of eternal things, conversion is settled once and for all the moment we trust in Jesus Christ. But because we still have a nature or at least an inclination, that takes time to overcome the habits, the attitudes, the things that do not change overnight. So there's a battle between who we were before we trusted in Christ and that nature that we still have and a new nature, and I think it's vividly described in chapter 7. And that's why we I have concluded that chapter 7 describes the internal battle of a believer. Paul uses himself as an example. So even an apostle and a major apostle experienced internal Warfare. So we'll continue looking at this internal warfare in the passage this morning, and then we'll come across some other principles as well. And just to remind you, I won't go into detail here, but the emphasis of chapter 7 is a quite a contrast. 7 emphasizes I. And if you just look at the word I or me 29 times in chapter 7, In contrast to chapter 8, I'll show you the contrast in a moment, 24 times in 7, 13 through 25, the particular little paragraph we're looking at. Me and my 19 times in chapter 7, 14 in 7, 13 through 25. The law, now he's transitioning. He talked a lot about the law at the beginning, 23 times totally in chapter 7, 8 times. You see it's going down. And he talks about the Holy Spirit only in 7.26. One time in chapter 7, 
And notice the contrast in Romans 8. He refers to the Holy Spirit and or God and or Christ or He when it refers to the Godhead 84 times. So the emphasis, you can already kind of get a hint just from the terminology that the Christian life, and remember, this is dealing with the Christian walk, the Christian life, it's dealing with sanctification. If there's an emphasis on me either doing or me at the focus, that's chapter 7, that's a problem. That's not going to sanctify. The key is the power of the Holy Spirit, and we'll see that when we do get to chapter 8, and that's the emphasis. I, only two times... And both those are not in reference to this this internal struggle or the the self-centered attitude, but they're more, this is my opinion of certain things. You can look those two up alone. The law and the obedience of the law only five times. So the emphasis is what God does in the process of sanctification, not what I try to do and end up, at the end of the chapter, wretched man that I am. Okay? Makes sense? So, I've been tracing through chapter 7, this internal battle between this, what we might describe as a sinful nature, or at least inclination. It actually began even before chapter 6, but very clearly referring to the old man. Chapter 6, verse 6. Body of sin, same verse. These are all different phrases that Paul uses to refer to that old aspect of who we are. Now, the unbeliever, this is all the unbeliever has. He has no new nature. He's not regenerated in Jesus Christ. All he has is that old man never becomes new. But that old man still resides. At least that's the phrase that uh, Paul uses. Old, he uses two words there. The word, common word for old, and the common word, anthropos, for man. And then the body of sin in the same. In other words, the body that contains or exhibits or is inclined towards sin, that sinful nature. He uses the word fleshly in verse 14 of chapter 7, sarkinas. 17, the passage we've been looking at recently, indwelling sin. Sin that indwells. We're going to look at it again in verse 18 and again in verse 20. So that brings us to where we're at this morning. We've seen the sin nature cannot sanctify. The law cannot sanctify. First 12 verses. Now the rest of chapter 7, I see it as the sin nature can't sanctify. And in fact, there's some strong statements in there concerning that sinful nature. He lays out the case, verse 13, and in fact, if I is the emphasis, if my self-effort is the emphasis, if trying to fulfill the law is the emphasis, we find ourselves in captivity, bondage, it's the word that is used in verse 14, 14 through 17, so there's a captivity to the sin nature. Now we're in verse 18, And he's going to describe further the corruption of the sin nature, 18 through 20. And then 18, we already looked at this, so let me just review for I, and I've color-coded to kind of emphasize these two warring factions that we find within us. These two forces, you might say, or uh, battle that goes on 
the I, and we're emphasizing the I and the me. The ones in blue are the regenerated aspect or the new nature aspect. For I, starting there, blue along with the emphasis that I'm emphasizing, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. In other words, I have a biblical perspective on who I am. That biblical perspective of me informs me that nothing good dwells in me. Pink, I'm using, shows up kind of whitish, but it's actually pink on the computer. Dwells in me, that aspect of me that has that sin nature, that indwelling sin, that fleshly aspect that we saw in verse, what was it? 14, that is, now he specifies, in my flesh. We looked at that last time. We'll review that real quickly for you. So nothing good dwells in the old nature. Now, that's a striking statement. In fact, this is one of the little phrases that those that believe that Paul is describing his unregenerate state would use to say, well, how can you say that there's nothing good that dwells in me because the Spirit of God dwells in me and because I have a new nature dwelling in me? Well, he is specifying that in that aspect of me that still remains, in other words, in the sinful nature, which tells us, I believe, that the sin nature never reforms. In other words, God does not reform the sin nature. From chapter 6, he wants the sin nature to die a slow death. Well, maybe a rapid death is his desire, but it dies a slow death. In other words, we remain with that until God removes the sin nature from us. So, nothing good dwells in that, in the flesh. In other words, the flesh cannot produce anything eternal. The flesh cannot produce anything spiritual. The flesh cannot produce anything pleasing to God. The flesh cannot sanctify. Make sense? And he's saying it's in me, still in him. And if, in fact, he is regenerate, he's talking about him as regenerate, along with the other concepts that remain of the, or that are evident of the new nature. Thinking? Yeah, I'm just thinking, so why would God not relieve us of the body of sin, the old nature, because it seems that because he is omniscient, it would be within his realm if that he could. So, so you're left with people who, I mean, the struggles can be really hard sometimes. Yes. Yep. And so we're left with that. And so, I well, mean, there's no answer to it, but I'm just thinking. So why would he not? Yeah, I think it all. I think a lot of what God does is He's bringing glory to Himself. And as people observe transformation, people begin to see something of the nature of God. And I think the Christian life is a display of God working in us where they see, oh, that's that old attitude that person has. And I've seen a transformation. And I think people see that when we initially come to Christ, something definite has happened. The unbeliever observes that. The rest of the believing community sees something happening, but we also see the process of transformation as we we go through the ups and downs. Yeah, but sometimes you, what you end up seeing is just the negative. The old nature is in us. You still say, 
so you call yourself a Christian, and this is what we just see, and right. you know, and but yeah. I guess that keeps us because we live in a world infected with sin. It does keep us reliant on Him, not thinking that we are right good enough. Maybe that's why. Yeah, I think there's two things that God is demonstrating through world history, starting with Genesis three fifteen. And won't be completed until Revelation twenty two twenty one. Two things that he's demonstrating. His nature, his glory. The second thing is the sinfulness of sin. And in fact, that's what we see in Romans chapter 7. Bill? I heard a similar question answered. I thought it was a rather convincing answer. In that when God lets us struggle with our sins, God is teaching, is allowing us to build up those spiritual muscles. Mm-hmm. Going to the spirit and reaping from the spirit. Yes. And that in our lives as we do that and somebody looks at me and that's not natural for Bill to do that. Right. That it's a bit of a witness. But it's also a way to when we get to heaven with God, there are people who have built up this character, this spiritual fortitude, and we will be with God, with each other in heaven and on the earth doing various things. We'll build up this character and we will be in a world without sin, without the worldly pressures, and without devil to tempt us. And that, that is one way God will get us to this amazing new creation, yep. future. Yep. And I think part of that will be displayed during the millennial kingdom as well, when we are freed from the sinful nature, these believers that are resurrected, and we will be useful and part of the usefulness is this training and development. Linda, did you come Well, up? we all have a similar solution. And you don't have to. Like, um, it's like alcohol. Um, raw, once you're sober, you're still an alcoholic. But nobody can help an alcoholic get sober except in the, Like, yeah, well, it seems. Yeah. That is yeah. Okay. an opinion. Right. So um, I think we're, we're left with it so we can help other people or so to speak. Yeah, that's part of you it too. To, to make so us far inside, you can't. Yeah, sanct- you stay by the door. Yeah, sanctification is the process of setting us apart for a useful purpose, and part of it is to help other people. David, um, the answer is Jesus, obviously, because he he said the Bible says specifically he's tempted in every way, we are tempted yep. yet without sin. So that is our answer. Answer is death, like you said, death to ourselves and. To so spiritual muscles, well said, and to develop rewards that way. Because what I wrote about indwelling sin is that it can't be removed or dealt with because it's indwelling. <laughs> you know, you're going to operate on yourself or remove your own sin. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. yeah, it's you that's trying to do that. Right, right. And that's the glory. In fact, Romans eight is going to talk about groaning and anticipating that day when that sin nature All is infected. So, 18, for I, in other words, I have an accurate assessment of who I am. I, in the new nature, know that nothing good dwells in that aspect of me, where the flesh is, and he specifies very clearly, that is in my, he's not relinquishing responsibility of his sin, he keeps identifying himself with it, that is in my flesh. So he specifies very clearly. And last time we looked at the word flesh and saw that it's used in a lot of different ways. 
It refers to the flesh of Christ, and we said that flesh in and of itself is not sinful because Christ had flesh. So sometimes it refers to simply, in its 145 times that it's used, to Jesus, he came in the flesh and dwelt among us. And we also know clearly from Scripture, Jesus was sinless. 1 John 4.2, even a test for a false prophet. Uh, a false prophet will deny the humanity or some aspect of the humanity, Christ coming into flesh. Now, others deny the deity as well, but 1 John 4, denying that Christ came in the flesh. But the idea is Jesus had flesh, so flesh in itself. I also said Adam and Eve had flesh before they sinned. That was sinless. But once they sinned, that flesh was corrupted. And all descended sins, all of us, have a, have a sinful nature. It can be referred kind of uh, in a neutral sense, you might even say, First Corinthians 5.5, Galatians 2.20, of the physical body, not implying necessarily sin, although we know that every descendant would have sin, but a reference to the physical body. There's a couple of passages very interesting referring to all of mankind, where the word flesh or sarks, the Greek word sarks in all of those contexts, Referring to a New American Standard, how did it translate it? Anyone remember? Mankind, I believe, in that passage. And there's several, particularly in doctrinal passages, that refer to the flesh as the sin nature, this one being one of them. We looked at Ephesians 2.3, that refers to believers in the flesh. That's all they have. They don't have a new nature. And believers, there are several, and verse 18 is one of them that refers to the believer still having flesh, still having that aspect that is contaminated with sin. And there's nothing good that dwells in it, nothing salvageable. God has redeemed us from it. In fact, he died on the cross for not only our sins, but he died on the cross for our sin nature, and we have died with him. That's chapter 6. And he uses it again in verse 25. We'll see that. Uh, there's an interesting passage in chapter 8 as well. And we looked up Galatians 5, 16 through 17 last time. So, sarks. Sarkinos in verse 14 relates to sarks. Sarks is the more common word, 145 times in the New Testament. Flesh. And in this context, in chapter 7, referring, I think, to the sinful nature. So we have all of these phrases. And in this case, here's one more that refers to the sinful nature. Now, we also have references throughout this passage of the new nature. That's this warfare, this battle between the two. And I think, starting in chapter 5, verse 21, a regenerated life. Chapter 6, verse 6, a resurrection life. We're identified with Christ's resurrection. 15 and 16, that new self, that new nature, desires to do good. In itself, it falls short. But there's a desire to please God, a desire to do good, which oftentimes, I think always in the unbeliever, it's at least distorted, the desire to do good. Unless one is beginning to be convicted of his sin and being drawn to God, Man does not seek after God, is what I think the early chapters of Romans tells us, and Jesus himself. 
So desiring to do good, we see that over and over. We saw it in 15 and 16. We're seeing it in 18. We'll see it in 19, and we'll see it again in 21. So an inward desire to do good, that inward new nature hates sin because it sees the uh, damage that sin does and the the pain and the, the heartache that sin does. So there's a hatred in our new nature towards that, and we're going to see it in 19 as well. Maddie? You may have come to you weren't here. Yeah, so you, you are excused. Uh, so I just have a question because you must have nominated fallen to do, he says in um, Matthew chapter 7 verse 11, you then, being right, mm-hmm. know how to give good gifts to your children, right? And he's making a more argument. Right. But he makes that statement. Yes. He says you're evil, but you know how to do it. Right. So, so how does that square with? Well, I'm just looking at it going, I'm not sure that we can blanket statement about an believer and say, because they have a sinful fallen only, that that absolutely have no desire, but that absolutely they have no way to tell right from wrong. That absolutely, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Um, so, well, even in that context, I would agree that when we talk about good, we're, this is a relative term. In other words, I think in the image of God, God has built within mankind a certain level of philanthropy or a certain level of even compassion and a desire for betterment of others and that sort of thing. Okay? But in terms of when it says nothing good dwells in me, I think he's not, I don't think he's talking about that inward image of God that resides within us, but he's talking about the ability of the flesh to be able to produce anything that is ultimately pleasing to God. In other words, our good works and the good works of the unbeliever, we've stressed that in chapter three, are as Filthy rags. Go back to the context of Isaiah. Yeah. And he's speaking to the nation of Israel who is in rebellion against God's covenant. Right. But they are, but they are keeping the letter of the law in terms of their sacrifices. Yes. But then you go and, but they've neglected weightier matters of the law. Yes. Like justice yes. and mercy. Yes. So they're giving sacrifices to God and they're turning around right. and sacrificing their children whole life. Yep. And they're doing detestable so that that practice, like the rituals, those mm-hmm. things, to God said, I hate those. Right. Those are despicable to me. They're like so filthy rags. They, they are, but that's the immediate context for that yes. passage. So I'm not sure that we can take and make a broader application from that passage to say then that every like good thing that you call good mm-hmm. is really not good. Do you know what I mean? I think I do, but I'd also you'd agree okay. that there is no good thing that we can do that merits salvation salvation before God. That is true. Okay. But I'm not quite sure we use that Isaiah passage to make that. 
Well, I think Paul is making that very point right here in, uh, what is it, verse 18, when he says, nothing good dwells in my flesh. He could have just as easily maybe used the same imagery that Isaiah did, but I think he's saying essentially the same thing. In other words, the flesh cannot do anything that merits righteousness before God, whether as an unbeliever, and in this case, from the perspective I'm presenting, the perspective of the believer that still has flesh, that still has that sinful nature. Mary Lee, were you going to add to that? I was saying that I was kind of, I've I've thought about that, you know, how is it that nothing good dwells in me? And you see very, you can see very good, uh, totally unredeemed people, because they can be compassionate, they're generous, they are all sorts of things. More generous than us as believers sometimes. Yes, and, and more more gracious and you know, all the rest of that, which is what I was thinking. It has to do with the currency of the kingdom that we do not have control over. In other words, it uh, does me no good to pay my taxes with Mexican pesos or with uh, reales or whatever. It does me no good to say, okay, here it is, because it is not of this country. I have to pay my taxes in U.S. dollars. Right. I cannot do it otherwise. And I think that that in some ways demonstrates A, first of all, the image of God that he put in us that we desire to do it. We're not just dirty, rotten scoundrels all the way through. There is his image in us. But we have no currency with which to come to him. Right. Because we threw that away when we sinned mm. in the garden. So mm. we have no currency to bring before him that, that is acceptable to him. So we're trying to craft our own currency, trying to develop our own standards of what we think he would like, which is the whole one of the big premises one of the big premises of the covenant was this is how my people come to me. And he would accept Gentiles that came to him on that basis. Context of that, right, right, yeah. I think we're talking about a relative idea here. In that, the best I can express it, in the image of God, we have something in us that does want to do and sometimes does do good, but it has no merit and no standing in terms of God, in terms of salvation. And I think now in this context. Equally, it has no benefit or moves us in terms of sanctification. I'm going to go with Jeremy and then uh, David. So, so I think this goes along with what Mary was saying in terms of John 15, 5, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. That's that currency. Right. right? The Apart currency. for me, you can do nothing. nothing. So there's nothing. They can do nothing if they are not you know, Yeah, I think that's a good... That's a good insight there. David. I just want to go all the way back to the garden and back to the first offering of Cain and Abel, and Abel thought he was bringing his best, right, best deal right to the altar, and he just said, "Oop, that's your right." Right. Yeah, and there's some things there that are not clear, but yeah, I think with the rest of Scripture, yeah, I would agree with that. Sorry, Bill again. So, based on that discussion, I guess imagine that was some of the topside discussions. Of, I mean, there are some things that. Do even unbelievers that are good that fall in line even with God's command. And I don't know how you can say that that wouldn't 
to a certain extent, please God, in terms of, yes, that's what I want, at least right under. Mm-hmm. I do see how you can easily say, absolutely, that doesn't merit salvation. Nor, and I would add to it, nor does it add to sanctification. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, okay. Well, I guess I just have an issue with Well, I think that's the point of this part of Romans 7, is he saying, if you're trying to reform the flesh, and you're trying to do good things from the flesh, rather than the Romans 8, the power of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't sanctify. Good. Okay. We agree with the law, verse 16. We'll see it again in verse 22. We have an accurate assessment of who we are. The unbeliever does not have an accurate assessment of who he is. He thinks he's okay in general until he's convicted by his sin. But in general, he thinks, I don't need a savior. I'm fine. I do all these good things and God's going to weigh them on a scale. And hopefully there's going to be more good than bad. And either that or universalism, God's going to let everybody in. He doesn't have an accurate assessment. So this is the new nature has an accurate assessment Believer, that new nature, verse 18, we're going to see it again in 21, we're going to see it again in 23. So in verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing, and we've already seen that word, fellow, the desire, the will, the uh, inclination, the willing is present in me, and that would be blue. The willing is in that new aspect of who I am. And... What does Romans 3 say? The unbeliever, none seeks after God. None none desires those things that uh, please God. The willing is present in me, but the doing, we've seen this word as well. The doing of the good is not. In fact, in verse 15, we have all three words. So the new nature not only agrees with the law, not only has an accurate assessment, verse 18 is that accurate assessment. Okay. So here's the words again for doing. Remember the contrast of doing. Verse 15, he uses all three of the words. Here we have the first one again in verse 18. And the willing, or willpower, we have it in 15, 16, 18, 19, 19 two times, 20 and 21. Verse translated will in verse 18. So the word fellow occurs all of those times there. Which can bring us to the next Principle of chapter 7, sanctification doesn't reform the sin nature, no matter how much you try. The sin nature is not reformed. Nothing good dwells in it. Verse 18. 19. For the good that I want, he's going to continue this contrast, fellow again. For the good I, in my new inclination, my new nature, I want, I do, I, the old self, does not do it. Now we have the third word of doing. But I, that old inclination, that's why I've got it in pink, practice, there's the second word that I just flashed up there, practice, puzzle, practice the very evil. This is the battle. This is the warfare that goes on. I do the very evil that I, in my new self, new inclination that I do not want. And we have fellow there again. So he's just continuing. In fact, this is very similar to what he said earlier in the passage. He's reiterating it again. So the new nature, 
Again, okay, that's the accurate assessment. So last part of the verse. But I, pink, I, the old nature aspect, the old inclination practice, the very evil that I, the new nature, do not want. We have the willpower again, and this contrast between performance and willpower, and I use the illustration that you can't dial it up. You've already reached high stage of willpower, and willpower is not going to cut it. In fact, we might say that willpower is not enough to sanctify. So you can't just say, well, I'm going to start anew today. I'm going to reform. I'm going to start over January 1st from here on out. Da, 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 da. I'm going to be sanctified from here on out. So what you had said a minute ago was sanctification doesn't reform the sin nature, but in reality what you're saying is that our willpower to sanctify ourselves doesn't even begin to cut it. That's and right. So that's where we need the indwelling spirit. To empower order, us. To empower us so that we are able to be sanctified. Yes. And in fact, to, to sanctify us. Yes. So willpower is not enough. You can't crank it high enough. You've reached the high point of the dial as you made commitments and you tried to reform and New Year's resolutions, etc. So it takes an it's outside source. It takes an outside. That's the whole point. Yeah. But if I, he's going to reinforce this, if I in the old nature am doing, there's that same contrasting word, the very thing I, in the new inclination, do not want, there's fellow again, I, in the new nature, am no longer the one, in other words, the one that's doing the evil, no longer the one doing it. Now, again, this is similar to what we saw in 17. He's not trying to get out from responsibility because he keeps referring to himself, but he's trying to distinguish between two selves, not two persons, we don't have two people residing in us, but two inclinations, two forces, or whatever, however you might describe it, two natures. But I am no longer the one doing it, there's the doing again, the performing, but sin which dwells in me. And we have all these words again, verse 20, katargazolomai, uh, and also poeo, and then the, the willpower, or fellow, in verse 20. So it occurs three different words there. But sin which dwells in me. He's not disassociating. It's still in me. It's still a part of who I am. So he's taking full responsibility. And there's that indwelling sin aspect again. See that? So 17 and 18, indwelling sin and then verse 20 doesn't show up very well. See the red there? No. Nope. There you go. It's under the mud. So indwelling sin again. Indwelling in him who has the desire to do good. So we could say, we could add to our principles here, willpower cannot sanctify. No. Won't power. Won't power. Won't power doesn't sanctify either. We'll have to add uh, number 16 there. One of the translations of the categorizes the mind was unfulfilled. So he was trying to do things that are unfulfilled. Yes, right. So sanctification doesn't reform. Sanctification doesn't reform the sin nature. Willpower 
cannot sanctify. So this is an intense internal battle. And verses 21 through 25, let's just get started on it, and then next week we'll pick up the last part of chapter 7, 21 through 25. We have the consequence of the sin nature. In other words, what does it produce? And the ultimate that it produces is frustration. If we're trying to live the Christian life by checking off boxes in the law or commandments, that's going to frustrate us. If we are trying in our own efforts to get better, to live better, to be better, to sanctify ourselves, we're going to end up wretched man that I am. That's the consequence. If we try to just, if I can only just make more resolution, if I can just try harder, if I can just have a new start, willpower is not going to do it as well. That's going to end in the same place. So verse 21 He's going to kind of outline and summarize. I find then the principle. What's the word there? Namas, and that's normally translated how? Law. We've seen in Romans, Paul uses the word law in about nine different ways. Here's Here's another one where he's talking about The same word, namas, where in some context, in fact, shortly, he's going to refer to the law of God using the same word. But in verse 21, probably accurately translated, it's like more of a principle or more like a spiritual law, you might say. Much like a natural law, like a a law of gravity. In other words, something that just happens because that's the way things are. In other words, here's the principle I find then the principle or the law that evil is present in me. Evil. There's another little phrase that gives support to the idea that Paul is describing his past life as an unbeliever. But along with all of the other little phrases that indicate that he's talking about there's something new in there as well. So I would say that I come to the conclusion he's describing the battle of the Christian life. I find this principle that evil is present in me. I've been using the analogy of Linus and Lucy, and that old nature, we're comfortable with it. And I gave you the other cartoon before. Here's another one, you and that stupid blanket. In other words, we cling to it. We cling to it. We want to keep trying to reform it. We try to keep living in its power, but in reality it is a stupid blanket. So I find then the principle that evil is present in me, and in me the one who wants to do good, reiterating, I have this desire, so we have the new nature, desiring good, verse 21 again, so this desire is there, I'm just unable to do it. 15, 16, 18, 19, and now 21, And we have accurate assessment. In other words, this is reality. This is who I am. Evil dwells in me. Good dwells in me, not in the flesh, but in the new nature. Evil, so that sinful nature he classifies as evil dwelling. Just like there's indwelling sin, there's indwelling evil. So we have these two separate side-by-side contrasts between what seems to be two different natures, a sin nature and a new nature, 
in Romans chapter 7. And this puts all of the verses together, I think, very nicely to describe the battle of the Christian life. So the one who wants to do good, evil dwells in me. Then again, I'm just emphasizing here, desiring to do good, verse 21, in that context. So we have all these contrasts. Willpower again, verse 21, we have the contrast. Wanting to do, or at all, 21. So it runs throughout. So we can conclude the law, the sinful nature, and now willpower cannot sanctify. Can you go back to the one with the boy? I might be covered in mud, but I'm under the blood. Very good. <laughs> I like it. We might even see it on a slide someday. <laughs> you want to close for us, Dave? Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice for us, your undying mercy and love. That even when we despised you, you reached out and you sought to bring us to you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for sanctification. Thank you for your crime is purity and form, and that we can necessity come to the cross and die. But that you when you rely on it to you will raise us up as Jesus raised into the new man to the likeness, not by our not by our own, but by your and your desire. We thank you for this thing. Amen. Thank you.